Welcome to the Beer Driven Devs podcast, where your hosts, Matt Goldman and Liam Elliott, share their experiences and passion for technology, software, and of course, beer. So be sure to grab yourselves a cold one and join them for this week's chat. Good evening, Liam. How you doing? Good, thanks, Matt. How are you doing? Good, thank you. Probably not as uh, refreshed as you after a week off. A week off. School holidays, so had a bit of time off. Yeah, it was good fun. You went away, didn't you? We were in Fiji, so I was hesitant to figure out if I was going to be drinking beers tonight because I've been drinking beers for the last week. But yeah, it's it's been good fun. Have you been before? I've never been to Fiji. Yeah, we've taken the kids there. Well, this is the second time I've taken our daughter, but um, I've been there a couple of times now. If you need to wind back and just kick back and relax and do nothing, it's a good place for it. Yeah, on the list. Everyone's got different types of holidays. If you want a relaxing holiday with absolutely nothing to think about, that's it. I do. I would love to have that kind of holiday. All of my holidays, for as long as I can remember, have been basically trips back to the Northern Hemisphere to visit friends and family. The most recent ones have not been for good reasons, unfortunately. But yeah, it, it, what, what I normally do is, uh, oh, I mean, apart from the kind of emergency trips back that I've made recently is, you know, I do the rounds, the normal trip that I usually do, and then just try and fit in a few days somewhere I've never been before on the way back, which is, that's kind of worked out, but it would be nice to have like a proper holiday. I imagine it would. I mean, that that's the beauty of the Northern, uh, the Northern um, Hemisphere, isn't it? So close to so many places. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I tell you what, I had an awesome holiday. Uh, it was about five years ago. I'm, I'm desperate to do it again. It was I met up with a bunch of people and we went down to Tassie for five days and we hired motorbikes and did like a five-day motorbike tour around Tassie. Yep. Awesome. That was awesome. Really, really good. Definitely keen to do that again. I remember going to Tassie uh, many years ago now. We were looking at the map, planning a road trip to go from the East Coast to West Coast. We looked yeah. at it and we thought, oh, it's, I think it's about sort of three, 400 kilometers east to west. We thought that's, you know, 100K an hour. Should only take half a day. We could plan that for the day. Didn't quite realize that the average speed through all the mountainous terrain um, was a lot lower than 100K. So it pushed us. It, it was good fun. We really enjoyed it. It's such a beautiful part of the world, but um, average speed was a lot, lot lower than we were expecting. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. Anyway, we're back. It's episode two. I think you have something on your mind, don't you? I think we've got a few things that we've been speaking about. Yeah, I mean, as we said before, I've just spent a week away in Fiji, which means I had a lot of time to read. What have you been reading? Well, based off based off a post I saw you doing some some tweets that you were putting out, made me re- want to revisit the Phoenix Project. So you, you've re- you read that before? I have read it before. I read it. I can't remember now. It must have been about five or six years ago. So I thought it's about time to have a reread just to refresh my memory. I mean, it's a really easy read. I wouldn't mind talking about the book. I haven't actually, in preparation for this podcast, I haven't looked at your review on it. I didn't want to have my thoughts and ideas tainted by that. So I will look at it after this. But I thought I wanted to have a discussion and a chat about it before I actually had a read about what your thoughts were. Yeah, cool. I'm glad you did that. It would be really interesting to compare notes. All right. First question. Did your impressions of the book change between your first read and your reread? I don't know. My memory is not that good, which is part of the reason why I wanted to read it again, because like reading it through this time, I really had a almost a, a visceral reaction thinking I've been there before, right? 
So the yeah. Steve Masters, the CEO, you know, I've worked for a CEO like that. This is going back. So this would have been, it predated when I first read the book. So going back about eight years ago, um, maybe nine years ago. So I'm sure I would have had similar reactions, but I don't remember it. Interesting. All right. We're going to, we're going to have fun with this. We're going to get in some details, but. Well, I don't want to ruin the book for anyone. Uh, actually, that's a good point. Yeah. So um, we'll try and keep it spoiler free, I guess. Although like one of the things that I said in my posts and uh, also in my review is that, you know, this book came out 10 years ago. And I think and one, of, one of the things I want to talk about in terms of takeaways is related to that. But um, I have found that, you know, I, I've been reading it recently and I found that most people that I'm talking to about it have already read it. And I think that a lot of people in our field have read it. Mm-hmm. Um, and like you said, it's it's a very easy read. So I, I would expect a lot of people have just picked it up and just read it. Maybe some have forgotten about it. Maybe some yeah. would like a refresh. I'm sure there are some people out there that, that haven't. So yeah, let, let's try and keep it spoiler free. Yeah, I just checked. 2013 was the original print. So 10 years. Yeah. Now I've got some thoughts about that and I'll come back to it. But I want to hear from you first. So tell me what, what was any like big ticket items? What are your key takeaways from the book? Look, <laughs> I know reading it this time, I was like, especially part one, sort of the first, the meat of, I think the first half of the book, part one, it reads like a Netflix series, you know, where there's drama after drama and every time they think they've got their head up to breathe, there's the next drama coming out, episode after episode. And, you know, it 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 does read like that. And in reality, I find... That a bit, a little bit far fetched, but I do get why they do it to keep you intrigued and to keep you um, on your toes, like to keep you coming back for more. But I found found that a little bit. As much as I've been in an organisation, like I said, I've worked for someone exactly like the CEO there. I mean, yeah. the company I was in was um, magnitude smaller. No way, like they were not a listed company; they were really small, but. It was still the same thing. There was still the CEO was asking for the world, running everyone, running everyone dry, uh, you know, stripping budgets, having again, having a salesperson or someone in sales, you know, sweet talking them and pushing their own personal agendas and pushing for their own personal projects. And yeah, and for me, that was a very real scenario which I yeah. and I, I don't recall remembering or vividly thinking about it that way in the past and for me for my story it actually ends there at that part one once right. they get to the end of their part one it that's where my story in that organization left I effectively did the exact same thing that the lead character bill does it was basically yeah. just sort of on the phone I remember saying it like you know I can't do this you're, you're asking for the impossible and I can't do it. Yeah, and it was pretty much exactly the same. And I guess unfortunately for me, or fortunately, I'm not sure yet. I'm still trying to figure that out. Yeah, I mean, it was a learning experience, absolutely. But I didn't grow as much as the lead character did in that from that experience. Interesting. Okay. And, you know, to tie it back to what we were talking about last week too, you know, the wartime CEOs or the wartime leaders versus the peacetime leaders, right? This was clearly a wartime scenario for that organization or for me at that point in my life. And yeah, I struggled to I struggled to make that transition. And, you know, I've got lots of reading through the book, I've got lots of reasons why that would have been. And, you know, I I 
take on board pretty much a lot of the feedback that's in, that's in that book. And I think for me, the biggest one was, you know, something I, I want to talk about too is the need for a mentor, right? So, you know, I, I think there's one of the underlying themes of this book is there's this character who is the mentor that's that's helping the main character build through his journey as he turns this organisation and the projects around. Yeah, I mean, it's that's sort of who I didn't have in my life. It's someone who I didn't have at that point that in hindsight I think would have helped quite a lot and I think it's one of those things that people overlook. Yep, interesting. There's a few things to unpack there. The first one, now as I said, this book came out 10 years ago and I think that impacts what we're discussing now, right? Yep. But uh, not once during any of that did you mention DevOps. Absolutely. I read this as a leadership book more than anything actually i did too and and if you look at my review that's exactly what i said and and it's funny because there's a lot of that leadership i mean the book is really it's it's about leadership and and there's a lot of that in there i mean there's a lot about a a very specific management technique which is interesting and i'd love to discuss that too but the book was written to evangelize devops yes that was that was its purpose and and i think 10 years ago the landscape in our profession was very different and you know now devops doesn't need evangelizing everyone knows its value well its value is very well understood and devops is ubiquitous and most organizations are devops organizations certainly in 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 my experience and when i read the book yeah i was reading through the devops stuff but i wasn't focusing on that and i wasn't dwelling on it those were the bits that i was not even skimming over but you know just those are the bits that i was just getting through the rest of the stuff like the the leadership and the 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 management the relationships all of that stuff was mm-hmm. was really where my focus was and that's that's the stuff that held my attention it sounds like that was the same for you as well absolutely but i'd like to know your thoughts here but i was cringing there a bit where you were talking about devops as it currently stands right yeah i can I, see i 100 agree this book was there to evangelize devops it was to show the benefits of bringing the dev team the ops team the security team basically bringing everyone involved in the building and the running and the delivery of the application together, right? And how, and instead of having individual silos, there's efficiencies to be found when everyone's talking early, like throughout that whole dev life cycle, dev and um, run life cycle. Now, I've, I've said it a few times now, I feel the term DevOps these days seems to be stolen and abused. And I've, and I've, you know, I've recently been in a large organization and, the term DevOps is thrown around, but that's effectively just the IT operations team trying to keep their hands on and trying to keep their silo, right? So they've got yeah. their own silo. They're in charge of everything that they do. They keep an eye on the resources that the dev team are requesting to use or the um, the ARM scripts or the, the scripts that they've got for the cloud resources. You know, they might give them access or take their access away, What's whatever. But they're not involved in the project space. They're not involved at that earlier stage that is, well, what was originally proposed as that DevOps movement. Yeah. So so DevOps, you know, the, the DevOps movement, the, the guiding principle, I guess, is really to break down that silo between development and operations and, you know, to smooth that integration. And, you know, and it's funny because if you look at the kind of principles that govern those two kind of areas of expertise, you know, when they're siloed on the development side, 
you know, you've got lots of different philosophies, but it's dominated by agile. So you've of course got other methodologies and other principles, but it, it's dominated by agile. And on the upside, it's dominated by ITIL. Mm -hmm. And again, you, you have other philosophies and other methodologies, but, but ITIL is really what historically has governed the upside. And when you bring them together, you get DevOps. And certainly in the book, you know, they really paint a picture of these two siloed and different organizations within the IT uh, function grinding against each other and really not working well together. And then through this this story, the two get blended together and you get this glorious outcome that, that's DevOps. Mm -hmm. Now, in the real world, of course, and this is one of the things you'll see in my review, uh, but, you know, and I don't, I don't criticize the book for this, but it, it's an observation, is that it, it is incredibly idealized, uh, the outcomes and the processes. So in the real world, it's, it's never that idealized, but you also have a lot of contention in a lot of organizations. And this is something I've seen in organizations, I've companies I've worked for and clients, and I've, I've seen it a lot, which is that, yeah, you do get those people coming from legacy departments and legacy kind of practices and, and legacy met methodologies, and they don't want to let go of their power and they don't want things to change. Mm -hmm. So they adopt the mantra of DevOps and they adopt the term, but they still just do things the way they've always done them. And I've seen this in organizations that claim to be agile, yet they impose waterfall-like philosophy. Yep. And this is something, you know, you see, you know, agile, one of the, not necessarily agile per se, but something like Scrum more specifically, right? One of the key tenets of Scrum is self-organizing teams. Yep. Right. And it's about, it's about reducing management overhead. And look, I know a lot of people hate Scrum. I also know that a lot of people that hate Scrum hate it because it's never done. It's, they claim that it's never yeah. done right. And what they really hate is Scrum done badly. But putting, putting that aside, right, one of the tenets of Scrum is self-organizing teams. And it's about reducing friction and reducing management overhead and trusting that people that you engage to get work done are smart enough to, to get it done. Mm -hmm. uh, so you get small autonomous teams, you give them the backlog. And they just get on with it. But then you get people that that recognize that agile is the new way and, and you know that's what they have to do, but they don't want to let go of all of their all of their management overhead and all of their raison d'etre, really, for for want of a better phrase, you know, a, a lot of people are employed because there is a necessity for them to get through all the red tape and do all the reports and organize all the meetings and all that sort of stuff. You know, so these are all principles that are not necessarily antithetical to agile but they don't really sit well with it. And they mm -hmm. come from the old way of doing things, but people impose them anyway, because it keeps them in a job, right? And, and you know, maybe less cynically, they just don't know another way. On, on the other side, on the upside, like I said, ITIL is what governed everything. And then you see people saying they're doing DevOps, but then you still have very ITIL driven processes controlling your DevOps pipeline. And I don't mean pipeline is in terms of your build pipeline, your CICD pipeline. I mean, in terms of the value stream for want of a, a better phrase mm -hmm. is, you know, the delivery of work from left to right and, you know, getting your builds out. So in the sense that that's the pipeline, which is supposed to be agile and it's supposed to be governed by these DevOps practices. And you see organizations imposing ITIL like control over it. So, you know, you then end up in, uh, in a situation where you're potentially worse off yep. than just say, just get back. Let's all just get back in our silos and do what we're all comfortable with and, and not step on each other's toes. But, you know, this is a broader topic about change management and embracing the future and embracing different ways of doing things. And, and this is probably something we should talk about as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, like, it still comes down to what you said with, or roughly what you said with 
Scrum, you know, at its heart, it is meant to be about self-organizing teams, right? Agile at its heart is meant to be about just, just doing what works for your company and adjusting on the fly to figure out what actually works. And just because it works in one organization does not mean it's going to work elsewhere. It's all about that. And this is that lean, that lean manufacturing, that lean production or lean startup mentality of just run your experiments, fail fast, take your lessons, move, adjust, try another experiment and move on. Right. Yeah, that's right. Now, look, you know, the flip side of that is that there are many products and many companies where that just doesn't work. Right. You know, if you've got the kind of company where you've got a very large consumer facing presence on the web and, you know, you need to adapt quickly and you need to respond to changing trends and changing market forces, that's really important. If you're a different kind of organization, let's say, no, actually, I'm not going to say, I was going to say a bank, but this doesn't necessarily apply to banks, but you know, you've got other organizations where it's more important to actually be stable and and not change fast. But again, and they, they talk about this in the book as well. And there's a, there's a certain, there's a character called John who, who has a a significant bit of character growth about two thirds of the way through the book. Uh, And he kind of had that old mentality of block everything, make sure everything's or all of my boxes are ticked. And then he moves into this this idea of actually, rather than being here to hinder things getting done, I should empower things getting done the right way. So, you know, you can incorporate this kind of stuff into Sorry, DevOps. Just to add to that, I think um, it's not just get them done the right way, but it's get the right things done, right? Because, yeah, one of the underlying messages earlier on in the book is he kept impeding and getting in the way, thinking things were important, but they weren't. He was not trying, he was not deliberately being a roadblock. He was not deliberately trying to get in the way. He was doing what he thought was the right thing, but he just didn't realize that what he was talking about was not the right thing to do or did not. I I, I don't know if I agree. I I mean, you know, what what he was trying to do, and again, we don't want to go into spoilers here, but what he was trying to do was save the company from a lot of pain um, and a lot of legal trouble. And, uh, you know. But he did not realize that that was handled elsewhere. Right. And again, this comes down to the left hand not talking to the right hand, right? You know, large organizations with large. So there was, so, okay. So I think, I think what you're talking about is there, there was a specific thing where, you know, they had these auditors and they found that this one process was dealing with something. But then there, there was another thing which there wasn't something being handled elsewhere, which is to do with those credit cards numbers on slips of yeah. paper, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. I mean, yes, there was a communication issue. And, and yes, there was, you know, some things that were being handled elsewhere which again arguably wasn't the right place for those things to be handled because it it wasn't it wasn't a particularly good safety net it's just that there was a safety net anyway i i don't want to want to get too much into that but the, the the point is that by the end of the book this guy is is helping everyone within this devops context and he's helping prioritize what are the important things that i need to not block but ensure are getting done and getting done the right way and then working with these teams to incorporate them into their processes Mm -hmm. now if you're the kind of organization that ends up with you know several hundred of these things which could well be the case you know let's say you've got pci dss compliance for example which is one of the examples from the book Let's say you've got some other regulatory compliance requirements. Yeah, there's a lot of things that you don't have a choice. You have to do. And you can automate these things. Uh, and then you can automate a whole bunch of tests, which is an awesome way of doing it. And then you know that every time you deploy, you get a report saying all these things have passed and it's good to go. Because the more of that you do, the longer these deployments take, which means you're getting further from that 10,000 deployments a day dream. 10, um, 10 deployments a day. He was They were targeting, not 10,000. 
Oh, sorry, you're right. So t- 10 deployments a day was what they were targeting in the book, but the 10,000 deployments a day was from the talk given at a DevOps conference that oh, okay. inspired the book. Yeah. Mm. yeah. No, and you're right there. But I, I guess yeah, each scenario is going to be different, right? Because I remember hearing a stat many years ago, like Amazon would release a production change every seven seconds or something. Whether or not, I don't know if that's true or not, but for argument's sake, if it is. But the thing is, their production systems are that wide and varied that one production change on a reporting server doesn't need to run the entire test suite for the entire their entire production workload, right? Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. This yeah. is the idea behind microservices in that you 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 start to end up again back back to the silos. You've got your own little bubble now, your own test suite. So your own unit tests, your own security tests can be run against your one silo. You'll then you could then run your integration tests for those that are affected and you know the workflows that might cross those um, the boundaries across the microservices. But you still will never need to run the entire suite of tests across the entire production systems. Yeah, that's right. And there's there are tools and processes for managing that as well. But you know, it, it's also it's not just about the microservices. And it, it's not just about the limiting the scope of a deployment to, you know, only pick impacts one out of say 5000 products or whatever. When you're talking about web scale, you've also got individual nodes. Mm-hmm. So you know, you, you might have 10,000 or 100,000 nodes all running this one microservice, and you want to deploy a change, you can deploy it to you know, 1% of them. And that's still going to be a significant enough number that you can monitor it and determine very quickly whether that's been a successful deployment or not, or whether that's something that you need to roll back, you know, and if it's successful, then you can roll it out to all the other nodes progressively as well. Or, you know, you just don't do that and you roll it back on the ones that Mm. you have deployed it to, or probably just bin them and just spin up new nodes with the old version. That's it. And, you know, that's sort of, they start to talk about that at the end of the book, right? Once they end up getting to their 10 deploys a day and they're managing, managing that. But I guess what's really interesting is where technology is at right now compared to where it was 10 years ago, right? With, with the containerization, Kubernetes, all that orchestration layer that did not exist back then. So a lot of what you're talking about or a lot of what they start to introduce or gloss over towards the end, I'd hesitate to say, but it's almost um, ubiquitous these days, right? Yeah, well, it is. Uh, I mean, the key word is orchestration, right? And, you know, there's a there's a lot of different ways of, of doing that. And I think that kind of orchestration is ubiquitous now. And I think because there's so many different ways of doing it, there, it, it's now a mature thing. It's a known thing. You know, it's not it's not bleeding edge like it would have been 10 years ago. As is DevOps, right? The, the philosophy of DevOps, right? It's quite ubiquitous now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, it's funny how, um, you know, we, we, we mentioned that, we didn't bring up DevOps because DevOps is so ubiquitous and we didn't really feel the need to dwell on it while reading the book. And now we've just spent so long talking about it. So let's talk about leadership, right? So so give me some of your takeaways from the book. You mentioned that you really related to Bill and his relationship with Steve. Yes. Uh, it's just the from Bill's perspective, you know, it's the unrealistic demands. You're asking me to you're asking me to do all these projects, make sure they're all on time. You've got conflicting conflicting deadlines, minimal resources fires turning off up left, right, and center. And it, it's in, it's good to see sort of as, I think it's sort of part two, you do see that that transition from Steve as he starts to, to recognize his leadership or his lack of leadership or his leadership has been the cause 
of basically the to the detriment of the company, right? And you see he has that light bulb moment. And yeah, I guess from my experience, I didn't I wasn't I didn't get that part. Like I said, my journey there pretty much ended up after part one, right? I threw the towel in, I went kicking and screaming. And yeah, I think there's there's one part of me that regrets that I didn't try to stick it out and try to figure it out and try to get through it. But there's another part that I kind of look back at it and think, you know, the organization wasn't a big one. There was a high staff turnover rate. The other senior members of the teams that started around the same time I did, no, no one lasted as long as I did. So I, on one side, I feel like I dodged a bullet. On the other side, I kind of feel like I missed a great learning opportunity. But yeah, it's, it's, um, it's just interesting to see that that mentality permeates you know this book's obviously written in the states we're in sydney australia that book the book's all about large multi-billion dollar organization i guess nasdaq listed shareholders etc etc whereas this was just a smaller 30 odd employees here based in sydney australia owned by one guy who was running the show and the same thing's going to happen no one's immune basically yeah, look, I, I've worked in organizations of varying scale from smaller than what you're describing to, you know, the kind of scale they're talking about in the book. And it is the, the kind of behaviors that we're talking about are not dependent on the size of the no, organization. Absolutely not. Like you said, no one's immune. So I want to talk about my takeaways from the book yep. for a minute. Yeah, yeah, sure. And there's a reason why I want to bring this up because it's really interesting what you're talking about, your journey ending oh, at the end of part one. So the first thing that I want to say is you mentioned that, you know, it's it's overly dramatic and, you know, and it is a novel, right? We mentioned this early on. It, it is a novel um, and it's a novel that was designed to evangelize DevOps, but it is a novel and it, therefore it is dramatic and it is meant to be engaging and, you know, exciting and, and keep you wanting to read and turn to the next page, right? But with that said, I felt that the portrayal of working life in the profession of a developer or in an IT department was startlingly realistic. And and I, you know, like, yeah, obviously there's a lot of dramatization, but, you know, you compare it to, well, you see a lot of complaints from professions in other fields, particularly like medicine, cybersecurity. You see their portrayals in fiction, these dramatized portrayals, and it is, they always complain. It's just completely wrong. It's completely unrealistic. Uh, and, and I felt that that wasn't the case with this at all. And like, obviously there, there was, yes, there was an over-dramatization of it. And yes, there wasn't a lot of technical depth, but there certainly wasn't embellishment and there wasn't things that were made up and that were unrealistic or untrue. Like it was all actually a very realistic portrayal. Uh, and, and, you know, even oh, so much, I mean, so much to break down there, you know, the, the character Brent, um, you know, that there, there was, there's this one character who kind of is the linchpin for so many different things. Cause he's a subject matter expert on everything. And, you know, he knows he needs to share his knowledge and he wants to, but he's so overwhelmed with work that, you know, he's firefighting all the time and doesn't have the opportunity to do that. And everything is dependent on him, you know? And then when they were describing the ways in which they uh, troubleshoot and address some of the fires that, that broke out and how they dealt with those, like even, you know, when they were talking about stand firmware and that sort of stuff you know that was all really realistic well you can tell that the authors have lived this experience you can tell that they have and as have we all and and it's funny what you're saying about how you related to the book because after i'd read it i i well as i was reading it particularly part one i was thinking to myself wow it's it's like you know it's it, it's like someone's watched my life and i and yeah, what, while you're saying it was a bit overly dramatic, I have certainly worked in organizations where I have felt that this was very, very real. 
um, you know, these dramas, this constant firefighting, the stress. I, I have worked in those kind of organisations before, and it is it's very stressful. So, but can I just jump in there? Is that at when during your time as in the ops team or the dev team? Because for the benefit of the live uh, for the listeners, you have made that transition from the ops to the devs side, right? That's right. Yeah, from the dark side to the light side. Yes. <laughs> Whereas yeah, I personally, you know, I've spent my life, my career as a dev in the dev side. I think, yeah, like you will have a very unique perspective here in that perspective because this book is written from the ops team's perspective, which is, as you were saying, that's where you've come from. That's true. Yeah, that's very true. And that's probably the, the lens through which I viewed it. And, and that is true. And the experiences that I am describing are definitely in my time on the upside but yeah I, I remember reading it and thinking like wow it's like these people are watching my life like it's you know and the funny thing is was after i'd read it and i started you know searching around and reading some reviews and reading some other people's opinions that was a very very common echoed sentiment was that people felt that it was yeah uh, a very realistic uh, realistic portrayal of the profession surprisingly so compared to the usual dramatizations uh, now, with that said, that's because it's 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 got a very specific target demographic, and it's not meant for a broader audience, you know, on Netflix. So, that's probably the reason for that. And and two, that yeah, every you know, people related and saying, wow, it's like it's like they've watched my life. It's like they've been filming me and written about it. So, you know, the experiences described by the author in this book, the authors in this book, are very common lived experiences, from what I can tell. Now, I was reading this book. And I was, you know, marveling at how realistic it was until I got to the end of part one and something happened. And for me, that tipped the book firmly into the realm of pure fantasy. What do you think that thing was? Can you guess? I'm just trying to think. End of part one, that was, so that was when Steve Masters has his little epiphany that he was a total asshole beforehand. And decides I'm going to turn everything around. And then they have that meeting where everyone, you know, sings Kumbaya and yes, exactly yes, exactly. That's exactly the part I'm talking about. So you know, the, the CEO who is basically being a dick to this guy, and again, common common lived experience. Like I've worked with a lot of very demanding people, uh, people demanding unrealistic things. In fact, I had one uh, manager who we lovingly, somewhat lovingly, used to joke would come into the office at eleven fifty. Uh, in the morning and demand a unicorn that shits rainbows on their desk by lunchtime. So, you know, I, I've kind of worked with people like that, you know, well, as you said, and more broadly, I have often worked, especially on the upside with, with the do more with less mentality, where, you know, people are asking for the impossible with less resources and less budget. And you present the options and say, which which one of these do you want to get rid of? Neither. Are you kidding? You know, you, you have to do both. And, and that's a conversation that happened in the book. Yep. Uh, and, and I've lived that conversation many times. How many how many P1 issues are there? Say that again, sorry. I remember working in an organization. It's like, how many P1 tasks are there for, for you for us to work on? Right. And the BAs would always come back, well, everything's a P1. Yeah. If everything's a P1, nothing's a P1. Exactly. Because they're all the same priority. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. But yes. Yeah. So, okay. So we get to the end of part one and um, Bill, who's the, the protagonist in this book, has been thrust into this situation that he didn't really want at the beginning. Um, and he's been put under unreasonable pressure. He's been treated like shit by the CEO who, and he throws in the towel. Mm -hmm. He says, I'm, I can't do this anymore. You know, here's my resignation. Yep. And then some time passes, not, not very much time. 
and the CEO, and this is this is the, the tipping point for me where I was like, okay, right, there we go. Now it's fantasy. The CEO calls him, begs him to come back, offers him very, very reasonable terms for him coming back. And then in the meeting, after he comes back, publicly apologizes and takes accountability. Now, I'm not saying that's something that doesn't happen, but it's not something I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. Look, I, I do have a bit to say on that too, because again, you know, I read this through a leadership lens and that point, that exact point in the book that to the end of part one reminds me of an article that I was showing a while back, an article called The Crucibles of Leadership. It's a Harvard Business Review article. It's just Google Harvard Business Review or HBR Crucibles of Leadership. It's basically about that kind of thing where, you know, a lot of the um, pivotal leaders that they've spoken to can all pinpoint a crucible moment in their life. And they define a crucible moment, basically, you know, a, a crucible is a vessel where you take hard metal, you apply a lot of heat to it, and then you can melt that metal down and form whatever you want out of it. And so they take these moments in these individuals' lives or these scenarios for these leaders. And a lot of these leaders can identify one very specific crucible moment that defines their that defines them. So with this with this reading, along with you know another leadership podcaster that I listen to, Jocko Willing, you know, he's often basically his main philosophy is or he's known for writing a book called Extreme Ownership. Right. And that's about leaders just taking ownership for everything under their everything beneath it, below them in their org structure effectively. They may or may not have absolute input into each of those decisions that happen from top to bottom. But ultimately, as he often says, you know, ultimately every problem within a business comes down to leadership. And it is the leader of that organization who top to bottom, it could be a frontline worker, if they've made a mistake, well, that's ultimately, that's the CEO at the very top, that's their problem, right? That's their fault, they should be taking ownership. They haven't um, driven home the point that uh, the training needs to be done. They haven't driven home the point why certain things need to be done certain ways. They haven't spoken to their managers to make sure that the managers get the ideas down to the um, frontline workers. Yeah. Right. So when I look through those two lenses, the, a, a good leader or someone out there in that leadership position that you would, I personally, I'd like to be working with someone that would actually turn around and take that ownership. You're right. It may not be someone that I've, it may be a fantasy for me, but I've seen, I can see various articles out there and various anecdotes where that does exist. Yeah, sure. And look, I agree. And, you know, there are definitely leaders that, that I have been privileged enough to work with that that do have that kind of mentality. It tends to be, in my experience, closer, um, smaller, more close-knit organisations um, rather than these kind of scale ones, um, which also, you know, ties into another comment that I'll come back to in a minute. I just want to say, I just sent you a link because um, you, you were, what you were talking about reminds me of, uh, I, this is an article I wrote a long time ago, uh, about six years ago on LinkedIn about what does leadership mean to you? And it's a very short article, a couple of hundred words, but I basically close that out by saying that in my view, the leadership quality I admire the most is accountability and a, a true leader a true leader is, is someone who 
takes accountability for not just their decisions, but the decisions of their team. That's that's what being a leader is. And you know what what, what that means is that when you you know when your team do something great, they get the credit. When the, when something goes wrong, you take the blame. That's it. Blame blame isn't the right word. Ownership. You take the own. It, it's taking the ownership, and it's. And it's not just taking the ownership of saying, okay, well, that problem happened because, you know, I was leading the team, something happened and I didn't know about, it was just happening and I'm just trying to think, right? Um, you know, I'm the CEO of Coles, one of the bigger, one of the bigger, um, one of the biggest supermarkets here in Australia and I'm the CEO there and someone working the cash registers at the local store has a massive argument with their, with a customer. And then it gets plastered all over, it gets plastered all over the news because they get into a fight, right? A physical fight gets plastered all over the news. Someone posts it on TikTok. Yeah. Now there's multiple layers of management between the very top and the very bottom in that instance. Yeah. Ultimately, it still comes down to well, it's the leader, like you said, it's them taking responsibility, them taking ownership of that situation. Okay. I might not have been able to handle that. I might not have been able to even foresee that happening. But absolutely, it's my responsibility now to take ownership to say, okay, well, that's happened. How do we actually, how do we put processes in place to stop that from happening? How do we, what other situations could happen similar to that? And how do we actually get that and drive that home to my employees and to everyone else around and to all the management team and say, okay, we need to stamp this out. Like that's not, you know, that kind of behavior is absolutely not on. Yep. And there's there's another important step there as well, which is the apology. You know, a, a great leader in that point, like you said, CEO, multiple levels of management removed. But, you know, a, a great leader, in my view, would stand up and say, I'm sorry, this happened on my watch. That's not acceptable. And I'm sorry. And I will do my best to make sure it doesn't happen again. And that's why, like, I don't see the second part of this book as being that much of a fantasy that you may have seen it. Oh, no, no, sorry. I yeah, I, I probably I, I didn't articulate that correctly. I, I don't see the second half of the book as fantasy at all. But that mo that one moment, that one interaction, completely broke that that absolute suspension of disbelief for me. Where up until that, I was like, "Wow, this is just so realistic." And then I read that, and I was like, oh, "Okay, no, it's not." And that's not to say the rest of the book was was fantasy. Although there were a couple of other things that happened throughout the book and towards the end of the book that really did really take me out of that suspension of disbelief as well. One is, and um, you've mentioned earlier, there's a character called Sarah. You mentioned her early on, the the sales type character that that's kind of got the ear of the CEO. Mm -hmm. Um, again, I don't, I don't want to spoil it too much, but but the way that her character arc turns out, again, is not something that I have encountered. So in in my experience, I'm trying to I'm trying to find a way of phrasing this without giving away any any spoilers. But in my experience, in fact, I'll just take a step back. And a lot of the characters in this book, in in fact, I'd go so far as to say, nearly every character in this book represents someone that we all know, right? Yep. And they all represent people, characters from our own lives and our own lived experiences. Mm -hmm. um, so that character, that Sarah character, I have found generally don't have the outcome that Sarah has. And I don't, I don't want to go further because I don't want to go into spoilers, but I normally find it goes the other way. No, because they're a very political character. Absolutely. 100%. That's it's all, all they are, yeah. And yeah. yeah, I mean, and to get to that position that she's in, they're generally pretty good at playing politics. Yes, exactly. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, the last character that, you know, who's an underlying character of the whole book that I think is quite interesting too is Eric, right? This potential board member that comes aboard. I don't, I didn't recognize it the first time around. I don't think, 
his mentoring and his coaching style. I kind of like it. Like I didn't recognize it for what it was at the time when I first read it, but this time around I did again, because I've had someone in my life at a relatively recent role in a similar position who took on that role. Well, in our team, he was our agile coach, but he was a mentor and a coach personally to me. And I think a lot of other people on our team. And I used to say the best thing he would do, what he would always do would be walk into meetings, he'd throw a grenade and then walk out. That's the easiest way to say it, right? And it's much like how Eric behaves in the book. He'll throw the grenade, he'll turn around and sort of basically dump all this information on Bill, but let Bill come up with the answers. Let Bill figure it out. And that, that is the core of coaching. Exactly. That's absolutely what coaching is all about. Exactly. Yeah. But I guess back then I never realized, especially when I read the book the first time, I don't think I realized exactly that's what his role was as much. Right. And yeah, I just wanted to highlight that. Like, you know, yeah, the mentors, the coaches aren't, they're not there to give you answers. Yeah, that's right. That's not their job. Their job is not there to provide you the answer. They're, they're there. Their job is to guide you to the right answer, to let you come up yeah, with an answer. interesting take. And, and, and I'm glad you brought up Eric because you you said earlier on when you were talking about your, your similar experiences, um, not just, you know, to you mentioned the scenario where you worked with someone who was very much like Steve Masters, um, but I think you mentioned sort of other roles as well um, and other parts of your life, I guess, where you've said that you didn't realize at the time, but the, the component that was missing was that mentor. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because I kind of I kind of went the other way and, and I'm I'm lucky that, that I have had some great mentors in my career but I, I have found that your your best mentor relationships are ones that come about when you're kind of you know when you aren't sort of leaning on that for, for what you need to get through what you're going through and um, it's a roundabout way of saying that, that the problem that I had I have had in my life inside and outside of work is that I've often especially when I was much younger, I've often found myself floundering and, and thinking, you know, I need a mentor, I need some guidance here. And, uh, you know, and, and just thinking, well, you know, I, I, not just thinking I need this, but but expecting it, right? Having this expectation, mm -hmm. because you read stories like this, and then you read all of our, our classic stories that all of which are kind of based on the, the monomyth, the Joseph Campbell monomyth, and, and a key part of that is the mentor, right? That gets the hero on their journey. And, and I was raised steeped in this kind of mythology, from all of the, the stories that, that I grew up with and, and that I was quite impressionable to that and that did leave an impression on me and, and at various stages throughout my life I found myself floundering and, and basically not really knowing what to do next and thinking well I need a mentor and, and as I as I got an older and as I, I I think I became a more rounded human being I, I've, I've generally found that the best thing for me to do is be my own mentor um, and that's not to say that you shouldn't have mentors and that you know mentors aren't useful like i said i've, I've had some some fantastic mentors that, that i've been very very privileged to work with and, and have that kind of relationship with and I'm, I'm not saying that being your own mentor replaces that i'm saying that being your own mentor is another tool in your box and sometimes that's sometimes that's what you have to do as well can you elaborate on that i'm trying to get my head around what you mean by being your own mentor okay so think about this from the the perspective of coaching which is what we've been talking about right Sometimes you need to take a step back and and think of yourself, you know, you got to have a conversation with you got to have a coaching conversation with yourself and you've got to take yourself emotionally out of the scenario and think. So I might say to myself, if Liam was having this, these difficulties and if Liam came to me and said, what would you do in this scenario? What would my response be? Um, it's kind of like rubber ducking in a way, I guess, at a mentorship level. So, you know, you've got to take that step back and got to take yourself out of the emotional 
depth of the situation as best you can. And you, you've got to take a step back and say, all right, if this was someone else coming to me for advice about this scenario, what would I do? How would I mentor someone? How would I coach someone through this? Mm -hmm. Because you don't, you don't always have the luxury of having a mentor to go to when you're deep in the thick of it. So sometimes you have to be your own mentor. I can see some cogs turning. <laughs> no, lots of cogs, lots of cogs turning. Um, that's, I'm just trying to think where, where we can go or what, what I can add to that. It's to me, that almost implies that you kind of know which direct, do you need to know which direction you're going to be guiding towards, right? As a coach, if you come to me with a problem, I might not, you know, as we've said, I'm not going to give you the answer, but I can lean you towards how to find out that answer. But that implies that I know the direction that answer is. Not at all. Not at all. In a coaching situation, the presumption is that the person that you are coaching knows and you just need to help them figure that out. Yeah, when, when, you're, when you're coaching someone, it's not just about guiding them towards an answer that you want. It's about helping them identify the answer themselves. You know, they're, they're supposed to come up with the answer themselves. You're just supposed to help them do that in a procedural way. It's a, it's a process. And that process is usually asking questions yeah. and getting them to dig a little deeper and think about things from a different angle. The philosophy of coaching is that to be a good coach, you don't need to know anything about the topic that you're coaching someone on. Someone can come to you. And if you're a really good coach, or I can go to someone who's a really good coach who knows nothing about software development and explain a problem that I'm having, a very technical problem, and, you know, they should be able to coach me through it yep. without any opinion of the matter or understanding of the matter. And, and you know, in the same way that someone who's a good coach, so, you know, an expert in any field that they don't know anything about can come to them for help and be coached through a problem. Mm -hmm. And arguably, it's detrimental if you as a coach do have certain expertise in an area because you then have opinions on it True. and you will then guide them towards your own opinions. True. Anyway, look, I've really enjoyed talking about this book and um, we are nowhere near done. And I think that, that we could talk about this for hours and hours and hours, but uh, it is getting late. Um, and I think we should move on to another important topic, which is what are you drinking? What am I drinking? Oh, well, as I said, after drinking for a week straight, I was contemplating whether or not I was going to drink. I have been going through the Young Henry's Newtowner. Oh, very oh. nice. Yeah. Yeah. That's, at the moment, that's one of my standard go-tos. I find that very easy to drink. Well, I haven't been away for a week and I haven't been drinking lots of beer for a week. Um, I have had a very exhausting weekend. Saturday night, Riley was up most of the night, oh, so no. I didn't, didn't really get much sleep. So I kind of decided that I shouldn't be drinking too much mm -hmm. and believe it or not and i'm gonna it's only the second episode and i'm gonna get kicked off this podcast already uh this is actually uh an alcohol-free beer well it's it's not alcohol-free it's very very low alcohol it's called heaps normal have you heard of this <laughs> heaps normal that's the um bolter heaps normal is it yeah no it, it's its own brand heaps normal oh okay and they've uh, like basically it's they make craft beers so they've got you know a really good stout uh, you know lager different kinds of ipas and well, this one's an XPA. Yep. Uh, but yeah, it's, a, well, it's not alcohol free. It's just, you know, they say it's like 0.05%. And it's really good. It's like, it, it's it's a really tasty craft beer. I don't know if you've had much alcohol free beer. It's usually not very good at all. Um, but there's a few, you know, because craft beer is really taking off. It really has been taking off for years and years and years. But the alcohol free options have been slow to follow. And some of the bigger breweries do alcohol free options of some of their more popular 
yeah. beers, but this this one heaps normal. They purely just alcohol free or low low out very very low alcohol. Yeah, I look. I've never done a low alcohol beer. I figure I don't drink excessively. I don't drink enough for the amount of alcohol to be concerned for me. So if I'm going to be drinking beer, I want to enjoy it. Fair enough. Well, you you know, you should give this a try. I mean, look, I, 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 as I said, this isn't because I've been drinking too much. It's just because I'm very, very tired and couldn't face a beer. Uh, next time in two weeks, I'll, I'll no doubt be back onto my um, my clone and wood on tap on the bar here. Yeah. Um, but one of these days, eventually, I'm sure we'll we'll record an episode of this in person at the bar here. So you can try one of these then if you like, if you don't want to bring yourself to buy it. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. I've got a. Um, I might hit you up for that recipe though. Oh no, I, I bought it. This is this heaps. No, 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 no. For the cloning wood. Oh, the cloning wood. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I might hit sure. you up for that because I've got a feeling I've got a brew day image soon, sometime very mm-hmm. soon. Oh yeah, I think on that it's it's been a good good chat, Matt. Good chat, and, and I think we'll probably revisit this at some point because I think there's a lot more that we could dig into here if we wanted to. I think with every topic. So, well, the two topics we've spoken about, it seems like there's uh, there's a can of worms there. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, um, on that note, have a great night and a, a great week. And I will, um, in fact, I will see you next week. I think. Yes. Uh, Come, coming in for the um, for your launch party. Awesome. Yeah, I'm looking forward yep, to that. So am I. Cool. All right. If I don't speak to you before, I'll see you then. Cheers. Cheers. The Beer Driven Devs podcast is recorded and produced on Dharawal and Darkenjung land. 